0: Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, corruption as the new normal in federal politics, the continuing politicisation of the Australian Federal Police, and reforming Australian politics. Where would be the best place to start? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics.
1: I'm David Lewis, and today I'll be answering the question,
0: don't you wish your girlfriend was hot like me? We've all rested up, had a decent holiday break, and now we're back with another year in politics. But like Rust, politics never sleeps. And while everyone was trying to rest and regroup after a big election year, we were alerted to the news that Scott Morrison's 2019 election victory wasn't as miraculous as he claimed. And much of the credit can be given to two sports funding programs worth a quarter of a billion dollars that were used to throw money at marginal and coalition held seats. There were two programs the Community Sport Infrastructure Program worth $100 million and the previously unheard of Female Facilities and Water Safety Stream Program worth $150 million. And in this particular program, there were no guidelines, no tenders, no application form. It was just a slush fund used for political purposes. The Morrison government has become one of the most secretive governments in federal history there's it's also a government where no one seems to take any responsibility for their actions. Is this sort of behaviour acceptable in a supposedly open and democratic system? Democracy
1: needs transparency. Ultimately, it's the voters who decide who gets to run the system. And the voters can't do that properly if they're not informed properly. And it's that simple. Democracy is built on pillars of honesty, of transparency, of communication, of fairness. Some of these concepts are adjustable. What is fair to some people might not be fair to others, and you can't please everybody all the time. But the Australian federal system ran for 110 years or so, using most of these being fairly open, fairly honest, and fairly open communications. It hasn't been completely open communications the whole way through. I don't, I don't want to say that it was this golden age of democratic probity before 2013, but things got worse since then.
0: Now governments of all persuasions will use incumbency and any action or program to gain a political advantage. It has always been like that. That's the nature of politics and we've come to expect that. But I think if we just keep saying that all sides of politics do it, so that's okay, It just means that this type of corrupt behaviour will continue to occur and all sides of politics will be let off the hook. There was that infamous whiteboard affair from 1993, that's where the Labor Sports Minister at the time, Ros Kelly, she allocated $30 million of grants to marginal seats and the only documentation that existed was a list of grant allocations on her office whiteboard. Ros Kelly did end up resigning as Minister and then left Parliament altogether. That was 27 years ago, but even adjusting for inflation, this modern-day scandal is far, far worse. The government can't just keep suggesting that all sides of politics behave like this. Both of these programs, to the value of $250 million, they need to be investigated. Yes, both sides engage in pork barrelling
1: and both sides have generally done it in such a way that it wasn't blatant and often it'd be two fairly close claims, one in a safe seat, one in a swinging seat, and they give it to the swinging seat. Doesn't make it right, doesn't make it excusable, and because both sides did it, both sides were wrong. No question about that. I don't think it's been as blatant and all the evidence pointed to the Prime Minister's office being directly involved. Rose Kelly's whiteboard work came from her department. Now, she may have been directed by the party or the prime minister's office or someone else to see what she could do to um, help electoral uh, results. And again, it was right that she resigned, probably right that she left parliament. These things are not to be tolerated in any way, shape or form. We're seeing now the tolerance of the whole government fairly openly, but not because they wanted to be, but because they couldn't cover their tracks properly, involved in blatantly favouring safe coalition seats and swinging Labour seats. Some of the arguments have come out have been ridiculous, pointed to the fact that Mayo and Warringah's grants didn't return a Liberal member, in that case uh, Georgina Downer and uh, Tony Abbott. Both candidates probably could have walked around handing out $50,000 checks to every, to every voter and they still wouldn't have won in those cases. The Labour seats that won were very close seats and there was only a handful of seats in it anyway. No safe or even moderately swinging Labour seat got a grant,
0: which is pretty appalling because the government is to govern for everybody. In the seat of Mayo... Georgina Downer was the Liberal Party candidate that was announcing and handing out the large celebrity checks of $127,000 to bowling clubs, even though she wasn't the local MP in that seat. The real member for the seat of Mayo, Rebecca Sharkey, she asked the Australian National Audit Office to investigate the Community Sport Infrastructure Fund, and that's what kick-started this scandal. The National Audit Office found that the entire fund was open to corruption possibly was corrupt and that there was a lack of correct documentation and it was even possibly illegal, and found that so many of the programs that were funded were either ineligible or not worthy of consideration. The National Audit Report was quite scathing, but Scott Morrison decided to ignore that report and commissioned the Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Phil Gaitjens, a long-term Liberal Party apparatchik and insider, to do his own investigations which did trip up Bridget McKenzie on a technicality, but completely exonerated the government. Morrison has decided not to release this report, so we don't know the contents. We don't even know if there actually is a report or not. But is this just the usual business of government trying to hide its own misbehaviour, or is it something else? I'm getting the sense that Scott Morrison's phone probably
1: had the most text messages of any phone in Australia. I suspect there was some kind of report, and of course it should have been out there. As many people have pointed out, if the report was thorough and cleared the government, they'd release it, because why wouldn't you release it? The fact that they haven't released it suggests that either one, there is no report, and uh, Gachin's reputation has been used and discarded to follow the government line, which is appalling, Or there is a report and Gauchens has done a fairly shonky job on it, which again is another person to be thrown under that metaphorical bus that seems to be doing laps around Parliament House at the moment.
0: As a result of the report, well, we don't know if the report exists or not, but as a result of the report from the Secretary of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, The Sports Minister, Bridget McKenzie, she was forced to resign on the more technical issue of providing a grant to a gun club that she was actually a member of. But it's obvious that she was sacrificed to stop the government's bleeding on this issue, but it was also to stop the track, leading all the way up to the office of Prime Minister and the Liberal Party campaign team, which is where all of these decisions would have been made. Now, for me, it's hard to accept that a senator from Victoria would have been able to know which marginal seats should be pork-barrelled in Western Australia or New South Wales. It's hard to accept that the Prime Minister would not have been involved in the allocations of these grants. Now, I've mapped out the link between these government grants and those marginal seats, and during the election campaign, Morrison toured every one of those marginal seats, close to the time that these funding allocations were made. So we've got all the evidence there. It's, it's easy to look up all of these issues. And it's, there's a clear link between the misappropriation of funds within this community sport infrastructure program and the prime minister's office. Apparently in his own seat, and this is
1: this has not been confirmed, the local soccer fields started building uh, new facilities before the grants had been announced with no money to be able to pay. I know that if the Prime Minister is in your electorate, you probably do get a few advantages than if you've got a humble backbencher, but it's not a good look.
0: And as bad as the Community Sport Infrastructure Program worth $100 million was, as far as the management of that was concerned. It was quite appalling, but that was a that was a model of excellence compared to the other program where they splashed money around the female facilities and water safety stream program of $150 million. Now, I'd not actually heard of this, and we did have a close look at the election campaign last year, but I'd I'd not actually heard of this program at all. Within this program, there were no guidelines, there were no tenders, there were no application forms. The government did say that they would release guidelines, but those guidelines never occurred. In some cases, the recipients of the grants found out about the fact that they were awarded $20 million through the media or through an announcement made by the local Liberal Party candidate. They weren't informed about it. In some cases, these funds were not wanted. $120 million of that $150 million fund, it actually went to the building of 14 pools and all of these 14 pools were either coalition held seats or in highly marginal seats. There's no checks and balances here. There's nothing at all. There's no indication as to whether these were good projects to fund or unworthy projects to fund. We've just got no idea at all. It's like a, an open-ended slush fund where Liberal Party candidates could just nominate whichever place they wanted to fund. And that, that's just not good enough.
1: No, it's not. And of course, we're not disparaging local pools and, and government funding into community resources. But... Why are some communities more worthy than others? And not far from where I live, there are soccer fields that any time there's even a bit of rain, they flood and they're unusable. Uh, But they're in a safe labour seat. There's an ice rink that needs total renovation. It's in a safe labour seat. Now, I don't know if any of these people applied for grants, but they wouldn't have got them. Basketball courts, skateboarding parks, all these things are used by the community and should be used by the community, let alone community halls, senior citizen centres, etc, etc. They're in every electorate, and they should be funded fairly. Sure, on an as-needs basis, but I'm not sure the Mossman Yacht Club needed $50 million, uh, more than
0: a soccer park in, say, Fitzroy. Something is rotten and smelling I don't want to bore you with too many details, but the allocation in those funds, that would total up to $250 million. Now, there was actually another fund as well, $200 million in the Regional Jobs and Investment Scheme. And within this fund, there were 12 ineligible projects that were funded. And of course, all of these went to projects in very marginal seats. There was also a Liberal Party donor who received a $5.5 million job and investment grant even though his organization wasn't eligible but all of these things that that's that's close to half a billion dollars just in port barreling and to me this doesn't seem like a government at the time that was thinking that it would continue in government i think they were highly expecting to lose that last election in may 2019 It seems like they were just all ready to leave office. And this is why they handed out so many funds to as many of their friends as possible, to as many coalition MPs as possible. And if they ended up winning the election, which is what they actually did, that was considered a bonus. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, when too much corruption just isn't enough, this time, it's the Australian Federal Police. I
1: survived the dinner And the air went thinner I retired to the briars But the pool it gets so
0: loud If I die this instant Take it from the distance They will probably list it down Among other things around town a few weeks after he became Labour leader, Anthony Albanese claimed he hadn't seen any corruption during his time in politics. And he's been in federal politics since 1996. Now he was ridiculed for the comment at the time. But he might be a little bit too close to the action to see this because from our vantage point in faraway Sydney we can see that political corruption is rife in Canberra and barely a day goes by where there isn't any news about another government minister involved in some kind of malpractice that will generally land anyone else outside of politics in jail. But this time around the corruption seems to involve the Australian Federal Police and their decision to drop the forgery case against Angus Taylor the error-prone, ineffective and incompetent energy minister. Here we have a federal minister releasing forged documents into the public domain to attack a political opponent and a Liberal Party staffer, Josh Manawatu, who has admitted to obtaining the documents, yet the AFP claims that there's no case to answer. In this case, we have a culprit, we have evidence, we have criminal intent, we have at least two people who are part of a conspiracy, and the police just says... Move on, nothing to see here. There are many parts of this story that just don't add up. Police services, again,
1: democracy right at the very bottom, and we can talk about all the lofty principles, but right at the very bottom, democracy is built on trust. You need honest law enforcement. You need good laws. Tanya Plibersek was heavily criticised for wanting children to recite the pledge Part of which included the words law-abiding, which a lot of early Labour members were not law-abiding. They protested, uh, which was against the law. They unionised, which was against the law. But democracy needs to be built on good, just laws, and underneath that, trust. Trust that the institutions are working in the best interests for most people. Trust that the institutions, whether the institution is that of the Prime Minister, that of the Parliament that of the court system, that of the various government departments, or that of the police and, and uh, justice system are completely impeachable. Now, this is hard. Of course it's hard. Raymond Chandler said something along the lines of, problem with policing is that it requires the very best people, and there's nothing in it for the very best people. And I can see his point. The other thing I think, before we go on to criticise, is that most Serving police officers are very hardworking, honest people doing the very best they can in one of the worst jobs you can have. Police officers see horrors every day that average people just have no idea about and have to deal with these. But a corrupt police force is a real threat to democracy. Look at Queensland in the 70s and 80s, New South Wales in the 70s and 80s and 90s, Victoria, more recently, the institution of policing has to be completely unimpeachable. Otherwise, we're in trouble. And the federal police, since 2013, but really since 19, what, 16, when they were formed, has had cosy relationships with governments. Tony Abbott stated, federal police barracks, this is not a good look. The police have to be able to arrest anyone who's broken the law, whether that is me at the bottom of the pile or the prime minister or one of the ministers of the crown at the top of the pile. And it has to be seen to be impartial and fair and just.
0: Well, I thought that we might have actually been closer to the top of that pile, but nevertheless, the subject of these attacks, Clover Moore, she's the Lord Mayor of Sydney. She said that this incident has had a corrosive effect on democracy. Let's listen to what else she said about this incident.
2: I think there's tremendous harm. And I think it's about, you know, standards of ministers and standards, of what, you know, what the public expect of, of, of their ministers. And, and, you know, for them to think there's no harm there, I think it's extraordinary. And, you know, they, they seem to be happy to go after journalists, but to not investigate, you know, where this originated. It came out of his office. Signed by him, crossed out the Lord Mayor and wrote Clover. Signed at Angus Taylor, you know, with this outrageous um, allegation. No, no response from Susan Lee at all over all of this time. Um, and I just, and for the AFP to say we're not going to investigate further because we don't think it's important, I think is a real failure in, 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 in their processes. And I think people will question, you know, their their modus operandi really. You know, why do they go after some things and not after others? You know, and. Uh, and, you know some people seem to think that that's you know um they're, they're pleasing their, their their political masters and i have no evidence of that of course but that's what it's looking mm. like
0: the original case was presented by the labor party to the new south wales police force and that's another politicized entity as well and they hand passed it over to the australian federal police the federal police just issued a statement it was actually a short and quick statement they claimed that there was a low level of harm there was actually a high level of harm to the political reputation of Clover Moore and there was a high level of harm to the fabric of politics and democratic beliefs. But there's no details about whom the AFP spoke to, any evidence they collated. Did they speak to Josh Manawatu? Now, he's a former president of the Young Liberals. He's a bit of a mover and the shaker within the Liberal Party and within the government. He was previously advisor to Erica Betts. He's the Tasmanian Liberal Party senator now, he's been sh- shafted off to Canberra. He's been allocated a different uh, portfolio, a different minister. We don't know what's actually happened to him. We don't know if he was questioned at all. And he had actually admitted that he's the one that obtained the document. Now, where did this document come from? Who forced the figures? Who made it up? Who decided that they should open up Photoshop and change those figures? So there's a lot of questions that we still don't know about. Now, sure, we could argue, well, the... the Whether it's the Federal Police or the New South Wales Police Force, they've got other important issues to deal with. They've got other important matters of serious Mm. crime, um, other issues that they have to attend to. And, And certainly taking up an issue like this takes resources away from their other important work. But this is also an important issue as well. It just leads into other factors of corruption within government. And... You mentioned before that Tony Abbott actually stayed at the barracks of the AFP in Canberra during the time that the lodge was being renovated. There are suggestions that the Liberal Party is too close to the Australian Federal Police and I think based on what we've seen over the past few years, there's a strong case for that.
1: Obviously, police officers are allowed to have their own political view. Some will vote Liberal, some will vote Labor, some will vote Green, some will vote National, some will vote One Nation. Provided those views don't impinge on the the proper performance of their duty, this is perfectly fine. It seems though that the political beliefs with some members of the federal police and unfortunately some senior members of the federal police are preventing the proper performance of their duties. It might not be political ideology driving this, it might be Um, a politicised public service with the threat of a soft kind of blackmail in terms of, are we going to re-sign your contract? It might be that the federal police realise it doesn't matter what they do, down the process, all this time and money going into an investigation that will ultimately be fruitless. And there is the possibility that everyone involved is genuinely innocent. We don't know. Again, this goes back to the notion of transparency.
0: Well that is the key point in this case where we just don't know what the circumstances are. We don't know what level of investigation has gone on. The Australian Federal Police, it seems to investigate incidents that are favourable to the government. Now the government needs to be at arm's length to to the Federal Police, but but they did have the raids on union officers. They also had the raids on journalists to investigate leaks coming from the Department of Home Affairs. Uh, There's a whole lot of issues going on here. In the case of the raids on journalists, they were actually inspecting journalists' underwear. Now The Australian Federal Police shouldn't be doing this, but in one case, we've got the AFP has investigated incidents that are quite favourable to the government. But if something is unfavourable to the government, they'll ignore that and drop it. That is not a case of justice being served or being seen to be served.
1: It was interesting that they went after News Corp journalists too, who are generally more favourable to the government uh, than, than not. We haven't seen a lot of criticism from News Corp since. Some of the very good journalists who work there haven't done the same in-depth reporting that they they had in the past. We're moving dangerously close to some fairly distasteful political systems that Australia has generally not liked. We can point to the Menzies government uh, arresting two journalists in the Bankstown Observer in the 50s over freedom of speech But this type of thing has become more blatant and obvious and less rare. Uh, The Menzies government did it once in 16 years. Not to excuse it and not to say it was right, but the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison government has a higher rate than I think any other government
0: Whether a minister forged a document or not, or whether someone provided that document to the minister, within the big picture, some people are arguing, well, it's not such a big issue, it's time to move on to more substantive issues. But these are important issues for many people outside of the political system. If a public document that has been forged and been placed in the public domain in such a blatant way, well, we need to find Mm. out who's behind it, and then the legal system can decide whether a crime has been committed or not. But the biggest issue is that there are no consequences. No responsibility has been taken. And that, of course, does lead back to the bigger picture. These actions probably explain why the government has been dragging its feet on the creation of a National Crime Commission. It was promised by Scott Morrison in November 2018. And 18 months later, we're still waiting for it.
1: New South Wales is probably the model in that... um ICAC, set up by the the great Liberal Attorney General John Dowd in New South Wales, passed through by the Liberal Griner government, had its funding cut severely by the Baird government when uh, members of, of his government started being found in breach of the regulations on corruption, and then cut again by the Berejiklian government for the same reasons. Angus Taylor would be one of the first to go down. Barnaby Joyce probably wouldn't last long. Scott Morrison probably wouldn't last long. They don't want one. He can promise all he likes, but we know that they're not going to put him in. And this is a tragedy.
0: The New South Wales ICAC, that was set up in 1989. Now, it was a very well-funded body at that stage. and It was part of an election promise by Nick Reiner, who won the 1988 election for the Liberal Party the problem for them was that it was too well funded it was doing its job too well and Nick Griner himself ended up being asked to appear at the the New South Wales ICAC and he was actually found guilty of corruption now that was overturned at a subsequent hearing but as you mentioned before subsequent governments have always cut back funding for the New South Wales ICAC so if a national integrity commission or if a national Corruption Commission is funded and it does end up being set up by the federal government. Probably going to be more in keeping with the current New South Wales ICAC rather than the one that was initially set up in 1989, which was apparently it was too strong at that stage. But the public wants something that is on a much higher level. They do want a National Corruption Commission that has teeth. They don't want it to be a toothless tiger that just decides to drop investigations when it's politically convenient. And This will go a long way to restoring confidence in the political system it's not just
1: justice being done it's
0: justice being
1: seen to be done in an open and transparent and in a way that if a mistake happens it can be corrected fairly certainly innocent people get caught up in things that they are innocent of guilty people get away with things that perhaps they shouldn't have in all these systems but if it's there and it's set up properly a lot less of this happens Yeah. And to think of someone like Bridget McKenzie, who it seems has taken the fall for being solely responsible, but wasn't. A proper independent system would sort this out. Maybe she was. But looking at the outside, the evidence doesn't point that way.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next reforming Australian politics and improving democracy. Where's the first place to start? I've had a few listeners suggest that we do endlessly criticise many events and issues within politics, but never offer any direction for how politics can be improved and how to reverse the decline of public trust in the political system. So, today is the day that we talk about how to improve politics in this country. Some listeners did ask us how it would be possible to start a revolution. Now, that's actually an easy one. You need six revolutionary leaders and control of the military and armed forces. But we've decided to start on something much smaller, but equally important. And that's the issue of accountability in politics and how to improve parliamentary question time. David, do you watch parliamentary question time?
1: No, it's usually at the time of the day I'm um, bleaching my eyes or or clipping my toenails or washing my towels it wasn't that long ago where it was informative where it was useful and it even was a bit entertaining now it is none of those being entertaining should be down the bottom of the list but i remember there's been some great moments in question Time. The one that springs Order. to mind is uh, so the John Hewson taunting yeah, Paul Keating.
2: Thank you, Mr Acting
1: Speaker. I refer the Prime Minister to his hopeless attack on Fightback at um, the press club today. Order. The, and leader, I ask... the Leader
0: will get to the question.
1: I ask the Prime Minister if you are so confident about your view of Fightback, why won't you call an early election? Order. Because, mate. Order. Uh, because.
2: Order.
1: Order. The, the answer is mate because I wanna do more. you
0: slowly. I wanna do you slowly. I know. No, no. I know. There's gotta be a bit of sport in this for all of
1: us. No, no. Approving opposition. And even sometimes probing government backbenchers, worried about a concern in their seat or with uh, one of their constituents, asking government ministers some quite difficult questions and getting some good answers sometimes, some bad answers sometimes, and or putting them on notice and somehow they're never revisited.
0: There was a time where I'd watch Question Time from beginning to end and be quite annoyed when the one hour was actually up. Admittedly, I had to watch it as part of my job, but today I can barely watch five minutes of it before I have to give up. Now, it's compared to Question Time from many years ago, it's missing the flow of debate, the cadence of speech, it's missing any relevance at all, and most importantly, there's no accountability or scrutiny of government. Question Time has been a formal part of Parliament since the 1960s. It's a part of Parliament that does need reform and needs reform quite quickly to restore confidence in the institution of Parliament. But where would be the best place to start?
1: I I think we've got to actually go a bit underneath that. I think we've got to reform the public, (laughs) which sounds a little bit Orwellian and a little bit social engineering. I think we need to educate people more in how government works. This requires uh, reforms to education, reforms to the media. A lot of the issue with question time is that we don't have a lot of great speakers. We don't have someone who can stand up and give a concise, honest answer to a question.
0: One suggestion to improve Parliament is to install an independent Speaker of the House. Currently, the Speaker of the House is provided by the Government of the Day, and this is a big part of the problem. Because they're provided by the Government of the Day, they'll side with the Government of the Day. That makes sense. Bronwyn Bishop became the Speaker of the House in 2013 and became the most partisan Speaker ever. She also breached protocol by sitting in the Liberal Party room meetings. And Parliament improved once she had to resign over parliamentary rorts. The current Speaker, Tony Smith, he's marginally better, but he's still a highly partisan player. The government of the day, providing the Speaker of the House, that's not a formal rule, it's just based on protocol, and that's something that could easily be changed. But an independent Speaker that sheds their political party membership, relinquishing their formal ties to any political party, that would be a good start in restoring confidence in Parliament.
1: The standard in Britain, which is where we took most of our standards from, was that the Speaker is independent. Um, The Speaker resigns from the party. The other other major parties don't run against the Speaker while he or she is in, in the Speaker's chair. And it's usually the the crowning to a distinguished political career, you know, didn't quite make the prime ministership, but you become the speaker and you you spend five or 10 years in the role being absolutely fair. Now, in Australia, it's a little bit different. As far as I can remember, we've had two speakers who acted with independence at the federal level. One was Peter Slipper. He actually ended up doing quite a very good job as Speaker because no side wanted to be affiliated with him and so he ran a very tight and, and good parliament. The other one was Littleton Groom, who'd been a uh, nationalist member. This is in uh, 19... I think he became Speaker in 1926. And in 1929, he used his casting vote to force the government to election, uh, in which the Prime Minister, Stanley Melbourne Bruce, lost his seat. From there, the non-Labour side of government weren't terribly wrapped in independent speakers. The Labour government hasn't either. But most speakers have generally... To use the sporting analogy, they've let they've let the non obvious fouls through, but kept everyone fairly honest. Sure more of the other side might get sent out or named or, or questioned or but if you were within fairly narrow guidelines, the speakers did very well. Until Bronwyn Bishop, whose partisanship was appalling. She was probably the worst speaker we've ever had. And in terms of how she acquitted the office of Speaker?
0: One other suggestion that we have is to end Dorothy Dick's questions. Any member of Parliament within Parliament Question Time, they can ask any other member, Parliament, a question. And that's the, that's the way that it has been and that's the way that it probably should be. But these are questions that go to their own side of politics and, and that's the government of the day. Dorothy Dick's questions, they're a stain on democracy. We Let's listen to a few samples of notice. these.
2: Thank you Mr Speaker. My question is for the Minister for Home Affairs. Will the Minister update the House on steps the Government is taking to keep the Australian community safe from threat of terrorism?
1: My question is to the Prime Minister. Will the Prime Minister advise how the Government is getting on with the job of supporting all Australians to realise their aspirations to secure their future? My question is to the Prime Minister. Will the Prime Minister update the House on further action the Government has taken this week? to deliver on its priorities.
2: Will the Minister outline to the House how the Morrison government is backing Australian women who choose to have more choices about how they live their lives?
1: Will the
0: Deputy Prime Minister update the House in the actions being taken to deliver the government's $100 billion infrastructure
2: program? Will the Prime Minister kindly outline to the House how the government is getting on with the job of delivering its plan to keep Australia safe and secure? Can the Treasurer update the House on how the Morrison government's certain and stable fiscal management is, will keep our economy resilient in the, in the face of future challenges?
0: Will the Minister update the House on the Morrison government's approach to setting and meeting our consistent and responsible emissions reduction targets? My question to the Minister for Industrial Relations. Will the Minister inform the House of the contributions made by militant unions to political parties in recent years? Is the Minister concerned that law-breaking unions are funding the activities of political parties? So these these are questions that are set up from the government and they ask their own side and it's usually a question that's asked of the prime minister or a senior minister and they use it to talk about how wonderful the government is to score points against the opposition and generally we don't get anything at all aside from glorified speech about how great the government is this has to end if dorothy dick's questions can go that would be a a massive improvement on quality of question time
1: I think it is important for backbenchers to ask their own government ministers genuine questions. You know, the government has promised uh, bridge repairs in my electorate it hasn't happened yet. Can you tell me when it's happening? Sure, we've got it slated for next year. Thanks very much.
0: Although you can imagine that a government backbencher who asked difficult questions of the minister probably isn't in line for a promotion anytime soon.
1: I don't, I'm not sure any prime minister has said, Gee, you really ran me over the coals this week. I I like that. (laughs) Here you go. You can be treasurer (laughs) or finance minister or something. But I think it's good that government backbenchers can ask government ministers proper questions. But yes, soft questions just fill time and prevent the opposition getting in their question.
0: And one other suggestion that we've also got is that questions from the community come in. Now, there are suggestions that MP, local MPs do ask questions on behalf of their community anyway, but it would be better to have direct questioning from the community. I think that would be a good look for Parliament. Yeah, I think so.
1: It, it could be administered from from the local members' write-in or email or what have you, and then the local member picks a, a few questions. Some of them, of course, will be not from the sane side of things, some of them will be the, the member will know are unanswerable at, at this time and might hold them back for valid reasons. But some of them, you know, there will be a few questions that would do well in question time and allow the local member perhaps access to issues that he or she didn't know. I think we've got to really look in question time at making it an efficient amount of time.
0: And maybe there's technological solutions that have to be looked at as well. I'm not quite sure what they could be, but having more community input into parliament question time, maybe it's not just simply a one-hour process in Parliament House. There has to be other ways to include the community. But it seems to me that all sides of politics would have to give up something to achieve a better system. At the moment, it's impossible to see how this could happen. So it seems like you need that combination of a strong crossbench and a hung parliament for these things to happen. And we might be actually close to that because technically the Morrison government is in a minority position at the moment with the resignation of a national MP last week.
1: Now, that was all to do with Barnaby and his idiotic attempt to keep the corpse kicking. But Queensland conservatives don't always run with conservative governments or non-Labour governments from the South. Anything can happen. And I'm I'm not going to make uh, predictions because we, we, we live in unpredictable times.
0: Well, we certainly do. And we can never underestimate the ability of the National Party to create chaos for for a government. Now, it was the first day of Parliament for the year, but the National Party decided to have a spill on the day that was meant to be honouring the victims of the bushfires. So, you know, talk about having a tin ear to the needs of the community if Barnaby Joyce
1: is considered a viable leadership contender, there's something very wrong with the National Party. And it's hard to argue with that. And the fact that you would pick the day in which rural communities were deeply, deeply and tragically affected to distract with a pointless leadership.
0: Now, the National Party spill, it seemed to be based around a whole range of issues. It's possibly personality, the ineffectiveness of the current leader, Michael McCormack. But at the heart of all of these issues is climate change. Now, climate change was a massive issue during the holiday break and has not really dropped off as as an agenda. It was white hot during the Christmas break. Maybe not as white hot as it used to be, but it's still affecting politics in so many different ways. So climate change is splitting the National Party and it seems to be splitting the overall coalition as well. It's splitting the Liberal Party as well, where there's the so-called modern Liberals that are looking at climate change as an issue that needs to be addressed effectively. And there's the other faction within the Liberal Party, the more conservative faction, which is filled with climate change deniers.
1: We've just had massive flooding in Sydney. Sydney was shut down. Driving in the rain was impossible. Uh, Roads closed. Suburbs like Narrabeen were evacuated uh, while bushfires are still going on. I've even seen people like Andrew Bolt, one of the big uh, pro-coal journalists and members of the Liberal and National Party saying perhaps we need to rethink climate change and its causes. There's been a seismic shift. It's going to be interesting over the next couple of months. And I'm wondering if the, the next election, which is currently slated for 2022, but I suspect will be before then. I wonder if there will be a realignment of parties. The Labour Party has its pro-coal people. Joel Fitzgibbon, Richard Marles, uh, Anthony Albanese, it seems to me is in a similar position to Jeremy Corbyn in Britain. Corbyn had to try and balance Labour Brexit people in the north and Labour Remain people in the south and came out with good compromises that just weren't taken up by the rest of the the rest of the electorate. And Labor and coal, of course, uh, at least some of it, is to do with the union and the people who work in coal, who are very traditional Labor voters.
0: Well, there does seem to be a distinct schism in politically within the, within the community. In West Australia and Queensland, they've got strong mining communities there. Labor holds only 11 out of the 46 seats over there in those two states. But in the rest of the country, it holds 62 seats to 54 seats. So there's definitely a a schism that exists there. And it's just a question of how the Labor Party will bridge that gap. Numerically, you can see what they're trying to do, where they're trying to shore up their seat numbers in Queensland and WA. So they have to work out a message that doesn't alienate those people that that are not from those mining communities. And gather support from the people that do live in those mining communities. and It is a difficult ask. It, it is a difficult ask. I think Scott Morrison probably has a similar in
1: that he's, he's got the type of voters in places like Warringah and, and uh, Benelong and Wentworth who are very much concerned with climate change. Of course, Warringah is held by an independent, but you can bet it's a seat that they want to win back and they don't want to lose Wentworth again turaks another one. You know, the inner, Those inner city seats, but also seats in which mining and coal mining is a part of the economy that are currently have have liberal members. Both sides, I think, will go through a realignment.
0: We're almost at the end of this month's podcast, but just a few housekeeping items before we go. This is our third year of the podcast, and we have around three thousand listeners for each episode. So a big thank you to all of our listeners. Keep listening and keep sending through ideas for the program. And I've checked the stats and we have listeners from all over the world. Australia, of course, the former European state of the United Kingdom, America, Eastern Europe. And i notice that there's a small band of listeners from your old hometown of Dubbo in regional New South Wales. Hello, everyone. And there's also our new book, Divided Opinions, which we released a few weeks ago. It's already become a number one bestseller on Amazon. It's the wrap-up of the 2019 Year in Australian Politics and it's available in e-book and paperback format. And if you're not keen to support Jeff Bezos over at Amazon, it's also available through a wide range of online bookstores. Full details are on the New Politics website. It's selling quick, so get a copy of it soon. David, have you picked up your copy yet?
1: I have. It's been the best book I've written all year and the best one I've read all year. because I haven't read anything this year, so... That position may change. I've got to say I was really pleased
0: with how it came out. It looks terrific. In all modesty, it's a pretty good read. It's only the first part of the year, so there'll be other books. Maybe we'll end up putting out another book by the end of the year, but let's see how this year goes. Yep, for sure. That's it for this New Politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. And you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic thanks to everyone and it's goodbye to our listeners
1: i'm david lewis we'll see you next time